The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1847, a black minister named John Barry Meacham walked onto a steamboat in the Mississippi River. On the boat were desks, chairs, and a library. He called the boat the Floating Freedom School, and he intended to educate black people for a dollar per person for anyone who could afford to pay. Previously, he'd had a school on land, and 300 students had turned up, but Missouri had responded by banning all education for black people. Undeterred, John Barry Meacham moved his school offshore to the river, where Missouri state law did not reach. A few decades before this, a young boy named Frederick Bailey faced a similar challenge in Maryland. He started to learn to read when a kindly mistress impulsively taught him the alphabet. After hearing his master's objections and the reasons behind those objections, Frederick became determined to learn to read no matter what. Eventually, his literacy opened the door to a wide-ranging intellect that changed the world. We know him, of course, as Frederick Douglass, one of the titans of American history, an essayist, novelist, newspaper publisher, and autobiographer, the most famous African-American of the 19th century. There are many moving passages in Douglass's works, but perhaps none are as moving or more famous than his description of learning how to read. We will have that story today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We had our Frag... Frag... Oh! One of those mornings. We had our Frederick Douglass two-parter interrupted last month, but that's okay because we're here at the end of Black History Month, and it fits right in. This story, I'm tempted to just get out of the way, and for much of the day, I'll do just that. I'll give you a bit of context once we start reading the Frederick Douglass passage, but it's hard to improve upon the words of Douglass himself, as he recalls learning to read. So I'll just get out of the way. But before we do that, let's celebrate literacy a bit here on the history of literature. That's why I started with that story about John Barry Meacham, to give you a sense of what kind of an upside-down upside down world it was in the 19th century. It's not often that you see a society that's trying to stop people from learning how to read. Let's uh, celebrate literacy a little bit. Literacy and learning and lifelong devotion to learning. Here's something that came in today. Back to back. First, I read an article about an Italian man in Palermo, Giuseppe Paterno, who recently graduated from college at the spry young age of 97. This was from The Guardian, this article. And he says, quote, Over the past few months, people have often asked me what advice I might have to offer. I always say the same. However old you are, don't give up on your dreams. Overcoming obstacles takes hard work. But to people my own age, I say this specifically. Don't waste the rest of your life staring at the television screen. There's so much more you can do. 
I grew up here in Palermo, the oldest of seven children, in a very poor family. Everything we had was spent on keeping us fed. I read so much at primary school, my teacher labeled me a wizard. I'd buy cheap books from a small market with all the change I could gather and dive into them late into the night. Dad declared my education over when I was 14. It was time for me to start earning. Before I knew it, my adult life had begun. By 28, I was married with children, training as a surveyor on the Italian railways. I stayed there for 48, uh, 42 years. My passion for learning never faltered. I continued to read and developed a deep love of philosophy. By the 1980s, I'd retired and life had slowed down again. With more time, I started immersing myself in the culture of philosophy once more. I wrote a book, which was received positively. When I discussed the prospect of enrolling on a course with a professor I met by chance, he did all he could to encourage me to go. That's when I picked up the phone and called the University of Palermo. Aged 93, I enrolled on my undergraduate degree in history and philosophy. A month in, I contacted the head of the faculty. I was having doubts. Everyone else on the course was so much younger than I was. There was so much technology involved I didn't understand. He told me that I must continue, that I have a gift and should persevere. It gave me the strength to carry on. Soon, I didn't feel any different to the other students. I'd read and study just like them. Unlike the others, I used a typewriter to write my thesis rather than a computer, but that didn't matter. The result was the same. Three years later, six weeks before my 97th birthday, I graduated top of my class. Graduation day itself was quite overwhelming. In a total surprise, the chancellor came to greet me, having organized a special ceremony to celebrate. I may have been their oldest student, but in that moment I was thrilled. I felt like a little boy. When he handed me a bunch of flowers, I was overcome with emotion. I'd always wanted to study, but thought my moment had passed. It was such a special day. I'd finally made it happen. My time at university has changed me for certain. It's as if my brain has evolved. I've started to speak a different language. If I'm discussing the newspapers with my friends, I can articulate myself with greater precision. I suppose I just think a little differently now. I'm still the same man I've been for coming up to a century, just with a few minor upgrades. I've signed up to start my master's in philosophy. I might be getting on, but I'm still determined to keep learning, broadening my horizons. I'm not driven by aspiration, but a thirst for knowledge. I've been desperate to quench it all my life. Hmm. How wonderful is that? Beautiful. Congratulations, Giuseppe. And then right after I read that article, which was from The Guardian, I, I guess I mentioned that, it's from The Guardian, I got an email, I checked my email, and there was an email there waiting for me from a listener. Subject, a steadied listener of yours. Hello, Jack. I enjoy listening to you. I live in Israel, and I am a very senior lady. I am 94 years old. I listen to audio stories in my tablet. Although I have a hearing problem and find it difficult to understand a very fast speaker, I discovered your program and I really enjoyed your interviews and historic explanations. 
I am listening to the cherry orchard now and hope to hear the scarlet letter next. I want to be a steady listener and thank you so very much for this program. Sincerely, Mrs. Blanche F. Well, Mrs. F. I've shortened the last name, by the way. Blanche, Mrs. Blanche F., you have filled my heart with inexpressible joy. I'm so glad you joined us for our journey through literature. I love to know that you're stretching your mind like Giuseppe in Palermo. And yes, I agree, it's never too late. And it's never too early, as our friend Hannah, with her young 18-month-old son, who's listening in his own way as he drifts off to sleep. We are so proud here at the History of Literature of being part of these worlds and this continuing education. It's simply fantastic. Thank you so much for the email, and good luck to you. Now, imagine what it's like. Giuseppe was burning to learn more, to get his education, and he could self-educate for all those years, dive into the philosophy that he loved and that enriched him because he could read. About 88% of the world's adult population can read today, which means there are still hundreds of millions of adults who can't. Some of the world's poorest countries have the lowest literacy rates as resources are scarce. We need to do better because here's the thing. You never hear anyone say that they thought learning to read was a waste of their time. Never. That just doesn't happen. You hear people say they spent too much time at the office or they wish they hadn't wasted their youth drinking alcohol or working at a job they hated. You hear people wish regret marriages. You hear them wish they'd spent more time with their kids or wish that they'd had kids or sometimes even say that they wish they didn't have as many kids as they did. You hear people say, I wish my parents hadn't made me take piano lessons and practice when other kids were out playing or doing other things. Or even, I wish I hadn't gone to college and taken out this debt. I wish I hadn't majored in such and such. I think now that it was a waste of time. Or why did I spend so much time learning French? I've forgotten it all. Or what was that calculus for? I never used it. People grumble about learning all kinds of things. They grumble about all kinds of ways that they've spent their time. Nobody, nobody says, boy, imagine how much better things would be if I hadn't spent time learning how to read. All those hours saying the alphabet and looking at books and putting words together and learning how that time could have been much better spent. That just, that's not something you will hear. It just doesn't happen. Reading unlocks so many doors. It turns a world of squiggles into a world with meaning, with signs and road markers, and the crazy paths turn into navigable journeys, whether we're talking about actual ones or journeys of another sort. You can survive, you can function, you can succeed, and you can grow once you learn how to read. And in the 19th century in America, you couldn't. You were not allowed, not if you were black, in certain states. But some people did, like Frederick Douglass. Let's take a quick break and pick up the story of literacy in 19th century America after this.
grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So let's start with a look at some anti-literacy laws. Oh, just the idea, just the name of that phrase makes my skin crawl. Not just a state saying, hey, we're not going to pay for this. We're not paying for you to read or we, we don't have the money to build a school. We're going to use it for this other thing instead. But a state saying, a government saying it will be illegal for you to learn to read. You black person, and it will be illegal for any person, black or white, to teach you. We will throw them in jail if they do that. That's unbelievable today. An unbelievable denial of humanity's full potential. I won't go into the arguments that were made for it, because Douglas himself gives the arguments by quoting his master on the subject, and we'll hear those. But let me give you some sense of the scope of how this was in America, anti-black literacy laws were in place in Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and Missouri. Punishments ranged. Black people who disobeyed were sentenced to whipping, and whites who taught them were fined or put in jail. In North Carolina, South Carolina said, you teach a slave to read and write, you pay 100 pounds and go to jail for six months. The northern states, meanwhile, were not exactly hotbeds of black education. Simeon Jocelyn, a white man living in Connecticut, tried to establish an African-American college in New Haven, his hometown, which, of course, is also the home of Yale University, so you'd think there might be some liberal-minded people there rooting for education. But nope. His idea, this was in 1831, his idea of an African-American college was overwhelmingly opposed by a town vote. The town voted against it 700 to 4. Then they forced him out of his position as pastor of an African-American church. His house was attacked by a white mob, and there was so much destruction of property for everyone who was sympathetic to the idea that there wasn't another African-American college attempted in the United States for 25 years when some black people opened Wilberforce University in Ohio. Prudence Crandall, another white person in Connecticut, a Quaker. Oh, God bless the Quakers. They were always, it <laughs> seems like they always pop up, fighting the good fight in their peaceful way. Prudence wasn't a stubborn, peaceful, but stubborn way. Prudence wasn't even trying to build a college. She wanted to start a school for black girls. Young girls. 
They weren't allowed to learn in the school with the white girls in town, so she started one for, quote, young ladies and little misses of color, end quote. The town went nuts. The state passed a law against it. Prudence Crandall was thrown in jail. She fought. The laws were challenged, but the townspeople stopped waiting around for the courts to decide. They tried to set the building on fire. And when that didn't work, they broke into the school at night. This was a boarding school, people. The little girls were there. And the town mob broke into the school with clubs and iron bars and smashed windows and terrorized the children until finally Prudence Crandall gave up, worried about the girls' safety. Why? Why? Why would you want to stop the education of anyone? The United States, the only country in the world, apparently, that has ever passed laws forbidding literacy. There's no other example in history that I could find or that the historians I checked with could find. If you have an example of laws like this, where a group of people have been prevented by law from learning, let me know. No other country in history has actually passed a law that said you cannot teach someone how to read. And if we catch you teaching someone how to read, you are in trouble. Why? Well, let's hear why from Frederick Douglass himself. We'll have his narrative of learning how to read after this. So this comes from The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, American Slave, first published in 1845, Chapter 6. My new mistress proved to be all she appeared when I first met her at the door, a woman of the kindest heart and finest feelings. She had never had a slave under her control previously to myself, and prior to her marriage, she had been dependent upon her own industry for a living. She was by trade a weaver, and by constant application to her business, she had been in a good degree preserved from the blighting and dehumanizing effects of slavery. I was utterly astonished at her goodness. I scarcely knew how to behave towards her. She was entirely unlike any other white woman I had ever seen. I could not approach her as I was accustomed to approach other white ladies. My early instruction was all out of place. The crouching servility, usually so acceptable a quality in a slave, did not answer when manifested toward her. Her favor was not gained by it. She seemed to be disturbed by it. She did not deem it impudent or unmannerly for a slave to look her in the face. The meanest slave was put fully at ease in her presence, and none left without feeling better for having seen her. Her face was made of heavenly smiles, and her voice of tranquil music. But, alas, this kind heart had but a short time to remain such. The fatal poison of irresponsible power was already in her hands, and soon commenced its infernal work. That cheerful eye, under the influence of slavery, soon became red with rage. That voice, made all of sweet accord, changed to one of harsh and horrid discord, and that angelic face gave place to that of a demon. 
Very soon after I went to live with Mr. and Mrs. Ald, she very kindly commenced to teach me the ABC. After I had learned this, she assisted me in learning to spell words of three or four letters. Just at this point of my progress, Mr. Ald found out what was going on and at once forbade Mrs. Ald to instruct me further, telling her, among other things, that it was unlawful as well as unsafe to teach a slave to read. To use his own words further, he said, if you give an N-word an inch, he will take an L. An N-word should know nothing but to obey his master, to do as he is told to do. Learning would spoil the best N-word in the world. Now, said he, if you teach that N-word, speaking of myself, how to read, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. As to himself, it could do him no good, but a great deal of harm. It would make him discontented and unhappy. These words sank deep into my heart, stirred up sentiments within that lay slumbering, and called into existence an entirely new train of thought. It was a new and special revelation explaining dark and mysterious things with which my youthful understanding had struggled, but struggled in vain. I now understood what had been to me a most perplexing difficulty, to wit, the white man's power to enslave the black man. It was a grand achievement, and I prized it highly. From that moment, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom— it was just what I wanted, and I got it at a time when I the least expected it. Whilst I was saddened by the thought of losing the aid of my kind mistress, I was gladdened by the invaluable instruction which, by the merest accident, I had gained from my master. Though conscious of the difficulty of learning without a teacher, I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose, at whatever cost of trouble, to learn how to read." The very decided manner with which he spoke, and strove to impress his wife with the evil consequences of giving me instruction, served to convince me that he was deeply sensible of the truths he was uttering. It gave me the best assurance that I might rely with the utmost confidence on the results which, he said, would flow from teaching me to read. What he most dreaded, I, that I most desired, what he most loved, that I most hated. That which to him was a great evil, to be carefully shunned, was to me a great good, to be diligently sought, and the argument which he so warmly urged against my learning to read only served to inspire me with a desire and determination to learn. In learning to read, I owe almost as much to the bitter opposition of my master as to the kindly aid of my mistress. I acknowledge the benefit of both. Hmm. We move now to chapter 7, where his story of his quest for literacy continues. Chapter 7 I lived in Master Hugh's family about seven years. During this time, I succeeded in learning to read and write. In accomplishing this, I was compelled to resort to various stratagems. I had no regular teacher. My mistress, who had kindly commenced to instruct me, had, 
in compliance with the advice and direction of her husband, not only ceased to instruct, but had set her face against my being instructed by anyone else. It is due, however, to my mistress to say of her that she did not adopt this course of treatment immediately. She at first lacked the depravity indispensable to shutting me up in mental darkness. It was at least necessary for her to have some training in the exercise of irresponsible power to make her equal to the task of treating me as though I were a brute. My mistress was, as I have said, a kind and tender-hearted woman, and in the simplicity of her soul she commenced, when I first went to live with her, to treat me as she supposed one human being ought to treat another. In entering upon the duties of a slaveholder, she did not seem to perceive that I sustained to her the relation of a mere chattel, and that for her to treat me as a human being was not only wrong, but dangerously so. Slavery proved as injurious to her as it did to me. When I went there, she was a pious, warm, and tender-hearted woman. There was no sorrow or suffering for which she had not a tear. She had bread for the hungry, clothes for the naked, and comfort for every mourner that came within her reach. Slavery soon proved its ability to divest her of these heavenly qualities. Under its influence, the tender heart became stone, and the lamb-like disposition gave way to one of tiger-like fierceness. The first step in her downward course was in her ceasing to instruct me. She now commenced to practice her husband's precepts. She finally became even more violent in her opposition than her husband himself. She was not satisfied with simply doing as well as he had commanded. She seemed anxious to do better. Nothing seemed to make her more angry than to see me with a newspaper. She seemed to think that here lay the danger. I have had her rush at me with a face made all up of fury and snatch from me a newspaper in a manner that fully revealed her apprehension. She was an apt woman, and a little experience soon demonstrated to her satisfaction that education and slavery were incompatible with each other. From this time I was most narrowly watched. If I was in a separate room any considerable length of time, I was sure to be suspected of having a book, and was at once called to give an account of myself. All this, however, was too late. The first step had been taken. Mistress, in teaching me the alphabet, had given me the inch, and no precaution could prevent me from taking the L. The plan which I adopted, and the one by which I was most successful, was that of making friends of all the little white boys whom I met in the street. As many of these as I could, I converted into teachers. With their kindly aid, obtained at different times and in different places, I finally succeeded in learning to read. When I was sent of errands, I always took my book with me, and by going one part of my errand quickly, I found time to get a lesson before my return. I used also to carry bread with me, enough of which was always in the house, and to which I was always welcome, for I was much better off in this regard than many of the poor white children in our neighborhood. This bread I used to bestow upon the hungry little urchins, who, in return, would give me that more valuable bread of knowledge." I am strongly tempted to give the names of two or three of those little boys as a testimonial of the gratitude and affection I bear them. But prudence forbids, not that it would injure me, but it might embarrass them. For it is almost an unpardonable offense 
to teach slaves to read in this Christian country. It is enough to say of the dear little fellows that they lived on Philpot Street, very near Durgan and Bailey's shipyard. I used to talk this matter of slavery over with them. I would sometimes say to them, I wish I could be as free as they would be when they got to be men. You will be free as soon as you are twenty-one, but I am a slave for life. Have not I as good a right to be free as you have? These words used to trouble them. They would express for me the liveliest sympathy and console me with the hope that something would occur by which I might be free. I was now about twelve years old, and the thought of being a slave for life began to bear heavily upon my heart. Just about this time, I got hold of a book entitled The Columbian Orator. Every opportunity I got, I used to read this book. Among much of other interesting matter, I found in it a dialogue between a master and his slave. The slave was represented as having run away from his master three times. The dialogue represented the conversation which took place between them when the slave was retaken the third time. In this dialogue, the whole argument in behalf of slavery was brought forward by the master, all of which was disposed of by the slave. The slave was made to say some very smart as well as impressive things in reply to his master, things which had the desired though unexpected effect, for the conversation resulted in the voluntary emancipation of the slave on the part of the master. In the same book, I met with one of Sheridan's mighty speeches on and in behalf of Catholic emancipation. These were choice documents to me. I read them over and over again with unabated interest. They gave tongue to interesting thoughts of my own soul, which had frequently flashed through my mind and died away for want of utterance. The moral which I gained from the dialogue was the power of truth over the conscience of even a slaveholder. What I got from Sheridan was a bold denunciation of slavery and a powerful vindication of human rights. The reading of these documents enabled me to utter my thoughts and to meet the arguments brought forward to sustain slavery. But while they relieved me of one difficulty, they brought on another even more painful than the one of which I was relieved. The more I read, the more I was led to abhor and detest my enslavers. I could regard them in no other light than a band of successful robbers who had left their homes and gone to Africa and stolen us from our homes and in a strange land reduced us to slavery. I loathed them as being the meanest as well as the most wicked of men. As I read and contemplated the subject, behold, that very discontentment which Master Hugh had predicted would follow my learning to read had already come to torment and sting my soul to unutterable anguish. As I writhed under it, I would at times feel that learning to read had been a curse rather than a blessing. It had given me a view of my wretched condition without the remedy. It opened my eyes to the horrible pit, but to no ladder upon which to get out. In moments of agony, I envied my fellow slaves for their stupidity. I have often wished myself a beast. I preferred the condition of the meanest reptile to my own, anything, no matter what, to get rid of thinking. It was this everlasting thinking of my condition that tormented me. 
There was no getting rid of it. It was pressed upon me by every object within sight or hearing, animate or inanimate. The silver trump of freedom had roused my soul to eternal wakefulness. Freedom now appeared, to disappear no more forever. It was heard in every sound, and seen in every thing. It was ever-present, to torment me with a sense of my wretched condition. I saw nothing without seeing it, I heard nothing without hearing it, and felt nothing without feeling it. It looked from every star, it smiled in every calm, breathed in every wind, and moved in every storm. I often found myself regretting my own existence and wishing myself dead, and but for the hope of being free, I have no doubt but that I should have killed myself or done something for which I should have been killed. While in this state of mind, I was eager to hear anyone speak of slavery. I was a ready listener. Every little while, I could hear something about the abolitionists. It was some time before I found what the word meant. It was always used in such connections as to make it an interesting word to me. If a slave ran away and succeeded in getting clear, or if a slave killed his master, set fire to a barn, or did anything very wrong in the mind of a slaveholder, it was spoken of as the fruit of abolition. Hearing the word in this connection very often, I set about learning what it meant. The dictionary afforded me little or no help. I found it was the act of abolishing, but then I did not know what was to be abolished. Here I was perplexed. I did not dare to ask anyone about its meaning, for I was satisfied that it was something they wanted me to know very little about. After a patient waiting, I got one of our city papers, containing an account of the number of petitions from the North, praying for the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia, and of the slave trade between the states. From this time, I understood the words abolition and abolitionist, and always drew near when that word was spoken, expecting to hear something of importance to myself and fellow slaves. The light broke in upon me by degrees. I went one day down on the wharf of Mr. Waters, and seeing two Irishmen unloading a scow of stone, I went unasked and helped them. When we had finished, one of them came to me and asked me if I were a slave. I told him I was. He asked, Are ye a slave for life? I told him that I was. The good Irishman seemed to be deeply affected by the statement. He said to the other that it was a pity so fine a little fellow as myself should be a slave for life. He said it was a shame to hold me. They both advised me to run away to the north, that I should find friends there, and that I should be free. I pretended not to be interested in what they said, and treated them as if I did not understand them, for I feared they might be treacherous. White men have been known to encourage slaves to escape, and then, to get the reward, catch them and return them to their masters. I was afraid that these seemingly good men might use me so, but I nevertheless remembered their advice, and from that time I resolved to run away. I looked forward to a time at which it would be safe for me to escape. I was too young to think of doing so immediately. Besides, I wished to learn how to write, as I might have occasion to write my own pass. I consoled myself with the hope that I should one day find a good chance. Meanwhile, I would learn to write. 
The idea as to how I might learn to write was suggested to me by being in Durgan and Bailey's shipyard and frequently seeing the ship carpenters, after hewing, and getting a piece of timber ready for use, write on the timber the name of that part of the ship for which it was intended. When a piece of timber was intended for the larboard side, it would be marked thus, L. When a piece was for the starboard side, it would be marked thus, S. A piece for the larboard side forward would be marked thus, LF. When a piece was for starboard side forward, it would be marked thus, SF. For larboard aft, it would be marked thus, LA. For starboard aft, it would be marked thus, SA. I soon learned the names of these letters and for what they were intended when placed upon a piece of timber in the shipyard. I immediately commenced copying them and in a short time was able to make the four letters named. After that, when I met with any boy who I knew could write, I would tell him I could write as well as he. The next word would be, I don't believe you. Let me see you try it. I would then make the letters which I had been so fortunate as to learn and ask him to beat that. In this way, I got a good many lessons in writing, which is quite possible I should never have gotten in any other way. During this time, my copy book was the board fence, brick wall, and pavement. My pen and ink was a lump of chalk. With these, I learned mainly how to write. I then commenced and continued copying the italics in Webster's spelling book until I could make them all without looking on the book. By this time, my little master Thomas had gone to school and learned how to write and had written over a number of copybooks. These had been brought home and shown to some of our near neighbors and then laid aside. My mistress used to go to class meeting at the Wilk Street Meeting House every Monday afternoon and leave me to take care of the house. When left thus, I used to spend the time in writing in the spaces left in Master Thomas's copybook, copying what he had written. I continued to do this until I could write a hand very similar to that of Master Thomas. Thus, after a long, tedious effort for years, I finally succeeded in learning how to write. Mm. There we have it. That was in 1845. Published, there was a dam in place, but the dam was about to burst. Slaves who could read and write were finding it an advantage as they plotted their escape. Two years later, John Barry Meacham moved his school onto the water determined to educate black kids, and eventually, thanks to their efforts and the efforts of abolitionists, the growing feeling that slavery was unjust and unsustainable and a horrendous moral stain that could not continue. The Civil War brought this question to its ultimate and bloody conclusion. Is America a land of white supremacy, where white people are free and black people are in chains? Or will it be the America promised by the language of the Constitution? if not always by those who spoke that language. If you're a parent, you know firsthand the joys of seeing a first smile, the first words, the first steps, and that first moment when the child says the alphabet. Imagine living in a world where a little one is deprived of learning the alphabet and you're not allowed to teach them. You just subtract that out from their life. Smiles, words, and steps. And your brain is going to learn things. 
Maybe you can have the smiles and words and steps, but you'll never learn the fundamental basics of a brain, a mind, learning how to grow, learning, given the tools to teach itself. It says to that little one, you won't ever read a street sign or a poster or a poem or the Bible. You won't ever read a letter that's been written to you or you'll never write one either. You won't sign your name because you won't know how. That's the kind of world that makes me shudder. And it makes me appreciate my own world where that's not the case. Education is a good thing. Whether it's that child reading Cat and Sat and Matt, or the 20-year-old diving into Tolstoy and Proust, or the 90-something-year-olds who still keep learning because we're human and because the human mind is beautiful and the human mind can't stop thinking and the human mind, not the white mind or the black mind or the young mind or the old mind, The human mind is born to grow without limits and for the benefit of all. Mm, That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Blanche, to Mrs. Blanche F. in Israel for her wonderful email and to Frederick Douglass for enlightening us all and to John Barry Meacham for his hard work, that unstoppable force who put a school on the water defying the grasp of those who wanted him to, or sorry, wanted to deny him the simple dream of teaching things to others. I'm glad I live in a world where people like that helped pave the way, though there's still more work to be done. As always, let's get to it, people. Let's make this world better as best we can. We are teamed up with LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. Find out more at www.thepodglomerate.com. Help support this show at patreon.com literature or at historyofliterature.com slash shop. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.